folks. Welcome to episode 131 of the Becoming Human podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Waking Up app by Sam Harris. It's a wonderful app that can teach you about um, mindfulness through very short 10-minute audio lessons. And they even have shorter lessons for, for children that teaches them mindfulness. If you were to look at like what skill sets can benefit the activities that you do from your professional life to your passions, your responsibilities as a person. Mindfulness is like one of the largest Archimedes levers. Through practice, you can learn how to be more present and in the moment and how to detach yourself from the um the emotional roller coaster that may be happening in your mind and beyond that it's a really interesting area to learn about yourself and to do some self exploration i mean 10 minutes a day that's a pretty short commitment you can check it out at wakingup.com or you can get it on uh, android and ios this episode uh, features Mike Kuriak. He's a legendary mountain biker, long-distance, multi-sport athlete, and a craftsman specializing in custom bike wheels. Mike has led a lifestyle of a dedicated mountain bike racer for 17 years. In 2009, Mike was nominated for the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. After many years of racing, Mike had transitioned to a slower pace of life. He moved from a busy town in Colorado to a quiet and remote area in Idaho. You can check out um, Mike's blog and learn more about his custom rims at lacemine29.com and um, in the show notes or on becominghumanpodcast.com there's links to um, the videos of him completing the it did a Trod Trail Invitational, a thousand mile mountain biking endurance race. Um, he's got videos detailing the whole event on his um, Vimeo page. You can find the links to that in the show notes and the website. Um, and we also got to dig into some pack rafting in this episode. For those of you that don't know, pack rafting is a really cool sport where you b get basically get to take this um, boat that can store to the size of a bread loaf and weigh less than like you know weigh around five pounds and you can take it down um, rivers and lakes and oceans it just opens up a whole plethora for adventure mike is like really inspires me as an adventurer and the way that he thinks about life and the choices that he made are very interesting so this is a deep dive and Mike's perspective on life and what his values and priorities are. Before we begin, I'm going to play you in with a song by Led Zeppelin, Over the Hills and Far Away. Enjoy!
Hey lady, you got the love I need Maybe more than enough Oh darling, darling, darling Walk a while with me Oh, you got so much So much So much transitioning out of racing bikes uh, in the mid-2000s, um, I, uh, I needed a new path forward, and that turned out to be building wheels. So I build custom bike wheels for people around the country and around the world. Wow, that's cool. Is there a big demand for custom bike wheels? Like, uh, looking from an outsider perspective, is there more to just, like, I need a particular size um, size of wheel for my bike? Um, that, that's a big can of worms. Uh, how deep do you want to go into that question? <laughs> I'm willing to go. I'm willing to go pretty deep because from the outside looking in, it would I wouldn't have imagined that someone could like sustain themselves professionally by building bike rims. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um. 
it's it's been really good to me um it's been easy to sustain um in fact this year because of all of the lockdown craziness and everyone wanting to get outside um i had my busiest three months ever directly following uh my slowest month ever um you know after having been in business over 15 years um so things are still changing evolving and uh and the business has to change and evolve with them but um, getting back to your original question, um, there's there are so many different sizes of wheels, as you noted, um, both in width and and diameter. Um, you know, from road bike wheels, kids wheels, up to fat bike wheels, um, and a whole lot of stuff in between. Um, so there are a lot of niches that that can be um, delineated out, uh, for lack of a better phrase. And, uh, and there's a lot of different people participating in each of those niches. Um, and when you buy a bike off the shelf at your local bike shop, they are going to come, uh, you know, a, a middle of the road bike is going to come with a relatively inexpensive set of wheels. Um, you probably wouldn't believe what uh, a manufacturer pays for that set of wheels. And they're, they're decent. They're going to get you from A to B. They're not going to do it fast. They may not last a super long time, but they're decent off the shelf. Um, and as people uh, dive deeper into their niches uh, or want to go faster or keep up with their friends or maybe race, um, they find that they, they have specific needs that the off-the-shelf wheels aren't quite uh, taken care of for them. Mm. And that's generally where I come in. Is um, What's the difference in the material design between, like, your standard middle-of-the-road you know, bike wheel and the wheels that you make? Like, are you using uh, more higher end, lighter materials, or is it just like how you build it um, with the same materials? It, it can be mainly differences in materials. Um, you know, they're, most rims these days come with aluminum, sorry, most wheels these days come with aluminum rims. Um, people like to upgrade to carbon rims for various reasons. Uh, they're lighter. They um, They have a lot of positive attributes that a lot of people think are worth spending extra money on. Um, so there is a weight component. Um, uh, as far as the hubs go, there, there are also differences in weight there. There are differences in engagement or, or how quickly they, they sort of take up when you start pedaling. Um, there are differences in level of ceiling. So, you know, someone who lives in the desert doesn't really need to worry about that too much. But if you live in a rainy climate or if you ride or commute uh, in the rain or salt spray, that sort of thing, um, ceiling comes to, to mean something very different and can be very important. So lots of different um, attributes to the hubs and rims that, that can be customized to a person's specific needs. When you were... Um, when you were racing, did you ever um, did you see a possibility of being able to um, like build this kind of niche as a craftsman, um, for lack of a better word? Um, or no, it, it, it never occurred to me. Um, partially because I was so deep down the rabbit hole of racing and, and trying to make that work, um, and uh, you know, always looking ahead to what the next big race was or the next big expedition or something like that. Um, I was fully focused on racing until the day that I wasn't, and then I really didn't have uh, a great path forward, um, and this sort of fell into my lap. Um, at that time, when I stopped racing, I was living in Colorado, just a few miles from a company called DT Swiss. Mm -hmm. um, DT Swiss is 
a they they make uh wheel components among other things they make rims they make spokes right there in grand junction colorado and uh and they make some of the best hubs on the planet and they needed someone to build wheels for them so uh they brought me in and and i sort of did that part-time as i was transitioning out of racing and eventually looked at the numbers and realized that you know there was both a lot of demand and um and it could be a decent living if I was willing to work hard at it. And so that's that's the very short version of how that transition happened. Uh what was your lifestyle like when you were racing and did you do that as were you able to uh make a living off of racing at the time? Well, you'd really have to stretch the um the definition of make a living uh to include what I was doing um it was it was very hand to mouth it was very much a hustle to make things work um i had the um sort of enviable and unenviable uh distinction of coming to the genre of ultra endurance mountain bike racing very early in its arc and so um the sky was the limit and the slate was clean and and i got to be a part of sort of creating um uh that that genre and defining what it was and what it was not um the downside of that was that the the money available to someone participating in those events was a pittance and you had to work really hard even to take advantage of that um so it, it was it, it's sort of a a classic story there there still aren't many people making a lot of money um in racing those events um but there's definitely a living to be had uh if you're if you're one of the top people doing it now did that happen by accident for you because like people i find like in you know like uh people who aren't really heavily into a particular like you know nature form of recreation um from the outside looking in it, some of these things can appear to be very challenging you know even like um these like expedition style adventures i had a, a guest on in the past and he did like a thousand plus mile you know like kayaking trip over in um like northern canada and what i realized with him was um the way he made it work was that was his vacation mm. yeah um i don't yeah I, i'm i guess i'm not sure how to how to answer your question after that like it seems like the question just morphed would you care to restate yeah. it <laughs> sorry about that mike the, um no no worries I, I I think I'm just a little slow on the uptake. No, it's okay. The just this seeming like when you you get into the mountain biking stuff, right? It some people might appear from the outside. It might look like things get like you know given to you or paid paid for you, right? And you have like these exclusive opportunities, and you're you're lucky to to have these experiences. But when I get to um, learn from people who do have these experiences, I find that. They do whatever they can. They hustle really hard to make it work. And, you know, just luck and opportunity meets with the professional aspect of it. Um, I usually don't find people in these kinds of, like, niche sports, particularly, um, doing it to be professional at it. They just appear to wind up getting paid, through, you know, by luck in that in that sense. You know, like, it wasn't your plan or it wasn't my friend's plan when he did the kayaking, right? He's made money through um through kayaking and doing these longer trips. Um, but he was just doing that as a means to an end or just as something enjoyable. And he was surprised to make a living out of it. Was that the case for you? Were you surprised to be able to make a living through this mountain biking um, 
experience or did you have professional interests at the time that you're building? Like, did you have a means to make a living? I, I would have been thrilled if I could have made an actual living at it, you know, paid a mortgage, put money into savings, that sort of thing. Um, as, as I think, I think the words I used were hand to mouth, you know, it was not unlike being a dirtbag in college, just, you know, going paycheck to paycheck and, and not always being able to fill in the gaps the way that you thought you might, because, mm-hmm. you know, something would fall through or an additional expense would pop up. Um, it was not any sort of glamorous lifestyle and it was not, you know, I never thought that it would be. Um, it was always just, I was super interested in exploring, seeing new places from the saddle of a bike, um, having that perspective, it's very different from any sort of any other sort of exploration I had done to that point. Mm-hmm. And so it was always just more of a, hey, you know, let's let's see if we can push this a little further and, and you know, maybe make ends meet so that I can do it for another year. Mm-hmm. I, would it be wrong to assume at that time in your life you probably had um, not a lot of financial responsibility and, like, your mountain biking took precedent over having more, like, assets and more responsibility like that? No, it would not be wrong to assume that. Um, that's very accurate. Um, it, it wasn't for a lack of desire to own a house. It was just not, you know, realistic. And and doing doing the sort of events I was doing, the the time component, um, the time that I needed to spend on the bike to train and prepare, the time that I needed to prepare gear, you know, do research, experiment with things, and then the actual time gone, you know, add that all up, and it, it precluded having any sort of a meaningful full-time job uh, on the side. So I was, you know, I would wait tables uh, or bartend, uh, that sort of thing, to fill in the gaps when I had a few weeks between races um, because those sorts of jobs are, are easy to get and um, they're they're willing to tolerate uh, inconsistent schedules if you're a hard worker. Um, so, yeah, that's probably enough about that. Yeah, I, I just come from a place of like, you know, I'm in my uh, mid-20s and I'm, I feel like I'm at a, a place with being a father um, where like you would wind down relative to being a father, right? But in regard to where I'm at with my age and just development as a person, I have that part of me where it's like I would love to be able to dedicate and commit my whole life to um, a particular interest like rock climbing or, or trail running. And that dirt bag, for lack of a better word, um, lifestyle is, is very appealing to me. And oftentimes I'd feel conflicted with those. Um, of trying to have a life that's stable and consistent and that's honestly like slower, you know, and less go, go, go and ambitious um, to as a father. But as like a, someone in his mid-20s, I would love to just, you know, be fully um, engaged um, in pursuing those activities that I love. And so it's interesting getting to know you and hearing your whole experience in, in mountain biking. Yeah, I mean, there's, I, I think you sound like, not not your voice per se, but your your sort of measured cadence and, and the things that you're saying, you sound much older and, and more mature, not, not to say that, you know, mid-20s isn't old or mature, but you sound much older than you are. You know, you have a perspective that I think not many mid-20-year-old people have. 
Um, I, I guess I'm bringing that up because um, we all eventually realize that there just isn't enough time. You know, we only get one go around on this planet and we have to decide what's important to us. And already having uh, your son and, you know, maybe more on the way, you haven't really mentioned that, um, you know, that's, that is an enormous gift. And in no way am I suggesting that you're, you know, wishing it away. Um, but you, you've got this amazing thing. And, um, you know, being able to grow up with your kid and teach him to climb, ride bikes, take him pack rafting, you know, do family trips like that. That's, that's just an enormous, amazing opportunity. And no, it's not glamorous or whatever other adjective you'd like to apply, mm-hmm. you know, to, to this sort of solo engaged lifestyle you started to describe. But, um, it's also, you know, something that not that many people, um, get, not that many people are able to do well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just an amazing opportunity. That's why I really relate with what I gather where you're at in your life from moving from somewhere that has um, perhaps a lot of um, lot of other athletes and a lot in a big community around that mountain biking maybe where I can imagine you're you're pushing yourself right and you're really focused on that and you make this transition to move to somewhere that's very rural and remote and I noticed that you have seen that your life is slowing down a lot more and you're paying attention to those finer details and you probably have more opportunity to diversify your interests. And that's where I relate with you in that sense. And I was really excited to talk to you because as a father, I have been competing in jujitsu. And when I was hanging around with national, like higher level competitors, not that I was ever one of them, um, I realized that uh, I had opportunities or I have opportunities as a father uh, and with that's unique to my predicament of being a youth who is an amateur in many things but is very curious and excited to learn things um, that I can kind of grow with my son and be a few steps ahead of him and be able to counsel him through what I just went through essentially um, whereas mm-hmm. I had like my friends are experience are experiencing in jujitsu what you experienced in mountain biking, really pushing that envelope. Um, what what I found was I would struggle comparing myself with them or putting myself in that environment because it would go contradictory to this one unique thing that I have right now, which is you know my son. And the thing that I found out when I was a kid, at least personally for me, was that. I didn't really know what the feelings that I had or interests that I had. And now exploring all these things are very satisfying to me because it's like I'm unfolding um, myself and learning about myself. So the, I take comfort in, in that if I do anything good, it's probably taking my son on these multitude of adventures, you know, like pack rafting or not even pack rafting, running rivers going mountain biking on trails, doing jujitsu and doing running. Um, it almost seems very favorable to my life right now to not commit to one thing, but to explore many things. Um, and I see that you, you seem to be doing that. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I kind of always have, um, you, you used a word that sort of stuck out to me just a, a little while ago. Um, you know, you called yourself an amateur and, and I, I sort of feel like I'm an amateur at everything I do. Um, very, uh, engaged and focused and, and, um, the learning curve 
is probably the thing that I pay most attention to um, these days. Like I, if I'm, if I'm already adequate at something, you know, like I'm an adequate mountain biker, then I, I sort of lose interest in that because being at the bottom end of the learning curve is way more interesting. Um, I'm, I'm innately curious about so many different things and being at the bottom of the learning curve, you just get to uptake so much information in a very short period of time. So, um, it's, it's maybe not the best plan for, uh, for getting good at something. Um, but it's a great plan for being satisfied and engaged, uh, more or less all the time. And do you do you find that um you say that trying new things can have shortcomings of not achieving mastery? Um yeah. only only if mastery is your only goal. Yeah, I struggle with that sometimes because I'm not I've never been I don't want this to sound negative or derogatory, but I've never been single minded. Um, in my pursuit and even just who I am personally, when I've tried to like only focus on, you know, martial arts and exclude everything else, it would be really hard for me to not um, like grow resentful towards that thing because I would long to do like my other complimentary recreation, but I would mull over and, or, and become, have a lot of self doubt because I wondered if I wasn't ever able to be successful at, at one thing, if I spent all my time doing many things. Have you ever found that mountain biking and pack rafting were competing interests, or did they just balance themselves pretty well? In a lot of ways, they balance well, um, partially because of when water is available. Um, you know, at, at runoff in the spring, when the rivers come up, uh, I'm, I'm primarily interested in, in traveling on river corridors. And so um, you got to have water and the water is there in the spring and early summer. Um, the Much of the Western U.S., I live in Idaho, much of the Western U.S., um, the bulk of that season, the trails are still melting out. They still have snow on them. There's mud. Um, it's raining, you know, rain, sleet, snowing. It's not, it's not an awesome time to be riding a bike. Um, you know, you can do it. You got to be willing to be uncomfortable. You got to be willing to have cold feet. You got to be willing to clean your bike a lot and replace brake pads and stuff like that. Um, and I've done that. God, I've done that for decades. <laughs> and um, this year was really the first time where I was like, you know what? I'm just, I'm not going to ride in the mud. I just don't, I know what, I know what's there. I know what's going to happen. I don't really need it, but meanwhile, the river is up, and I can go do that. And so in, in that way, at least, they are complementary. Um, my wife is – she boats a little bit, but she really lives to ride bikes. And uh, so it has been a little bit um, challenging this year because we're in a new place. She wants to go explore. Um, I also want to explore, but where she would prefer to be on the bike every day, I would lean toward being in the boat more often. And so um, the the most competing pull that I've felt is not anything to do with, you know, whether I want to ride or boat. It's that, um, you know, I, I need to be a good husband and compromise and ride maybe a little more than I would like to right now. Um, mm. The upshot of all this is that 
the water is finally gone. Uh, it's late September and, um, the weather is beautiful and it's time to ride. And, um, so that's what we've been doing. Oh, that's cool. Um, how do you navigate, um, what strategies have you used to navigate balancing your priorities and, and listening to those, whether that's, like you said, with relationships or perhaps professionally, whether it's, you know, building now the, um, the bike tires or rims um, or in the past, you know, racing bikes? Um, how do you balance your um, priorities and your um, your innate desire to like to do things, to do an activity or like you're, you know, if you're mountain biking, you're like, oh, I want to, it's time to run rivers. This would be a great time to run rivers. Or, you know, like, how would you, have you ever had to um, cope with that and use strategies to deal with that? <laughs> um, I'm sort of chuckling because your, your main question is, how do you balance competing priorities? And the easy answer is poorly. <laughs> uh, there's, you know, in in a perfect world, the days would be 60 hours long and we wouldn't have to work during them and we would have all the money we needed and all the fitness we'd like and, you know, and, and we could just do what came naturally, um, what we desired all the time um, in this imperfect world that we live in. Um, you know, none of that is the case. And so it's always a struggle. And, um, you know, you're always being pushed or pulled in one direction. Um my my business takes a lot of my time, um, and even when I'm not actively you know focused on it because uh, you know it, I'm I'm a sole proprietor. It, it's a, just just me running this business. Even when I'm not working on it actively, you know it's still burning in the background in my head. Um, I actually slept pretty poorly last night just because you know a whole bunch of things came together at at the same time yesterday afternoon. And, um, and it's like, all right, you know, I, I need to figure this out and figure that out and plan this route forward. And so I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but the short answer is, um, poorly, but endeavoring to do better. Mm. <laughs> That's comforting coming from my perspective. Yeah. Uh, do you, in terms of your priorities, how do you prioritize, prioritize, um, your adventures and health? Um, in the face of your um, your work or, or your profession? I'm not sure I understand that question. So as I'm um, approaching, like, I'm trying to get into graphic design. I'm trying to spend time um, building a skill set so that I have a profession that I, I enjoy um, and that I actually want to do. But it's very unfamiliar for me because I've spent – um, several years finding the the activities and exercise that I like to do, um, but I'm stuck at this crossroads sometimes where um, I have, if I want to learn graphic design or if I'm going to prioritize graphic design, um, I might have to skip on my, my exercise or even worse, I might have to skip out on my long run. And I find myself conflicted um, with that, because if I fall in love with this profession, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose the priority of my adventure, and that's going to go out the window. Because I pull that from some narratives that I, I would read in like movies and stories of people becoming weekend warriors and fizzling out on their recreation. Um, 
and I look to you as someone who would be like recreating, you know, very intensely for many years. And now for the past 15 years, you have your own business and you're very committed to that. And that, you know, you sounds like you're very passionate about that, but you're still consistently have what I would consider from what I read really epic adventures. You know, you're more than a weekend warrior. You're um, having fun very frequently but you still are passionate and spend a lot of time on your business. I'm curious in how you balance that. And that's what I want to, I want to learn more about. Um, so that was a long. <laughs> yeah. This, I mean, this, this feels like a rewording of the last question and, and the answer is the same. It, it's, it's poorly, you know, I, I, mean, I, you know, I, I struggle, I endeavor, but um, it's, 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 the sort of thing where there's just never enough hours in the day and, uh, you know, to do all the things you want to do. But um, does, now does that look like, though, where you're not able to do, like, those fun exercise, you know, and, like, uh, adventure things? Like, do you sometimes sell those things short, or do you find yourself selling your business short, if you don't mind me asking? I don't mean that to be... No, that, that's a fair question. Um, you know, because the, the business is what pays the mortgage and makes the car payment and covers health insurance, like, I, you know, I'm... <laughs> I, I don't see how you can how you can sell that short. You know that has to be first priority. That doesn't mean that it it is prioritized above everything. You know yeah. sometimes I literally have to to hang the gone fishing sign and just get out for a day or for a weekend or you know it, increasingly I don't get out as much as as I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not necessarily because of the business, but it's it's you know there there are other factors at play. Yeah. Um, you know wanting. We, we one of the reasons we left Colorado was that we didn't really enjoy living where we had settled ourselves. And so three weekends a month, at least, we were gone. We would, you know, travel three or four hours to be someplace we, we really wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so having those those opportunities was great. But it was also a lot of time spent driving, um, a lot of time spent unpacking and doing laundry after the weekend was over. And, you know, by by late summer, you're just exhausted, you know, total first world problem. Don't get me wrong, but you were exhausted from doing something every weekend and you just wanted to stay home. Mm. So we've now made this transition where we have uh, a new stadium, as it were, out our back door. And we haven't really felt the need to travel this summer. Um, my wife might disagree with that, but, you know, I've <laughs> I've left the county, I think, three times since March. Um, you know, it's I, I'm I'm enjoying staying put, slowing down, learning what the new backyard is like. I don't I don't know if you can hear if the audio is good enough, but there are, I'm I think I mentioned I'm sitting on my deck and there are, there's bird song all around me. Um, one of the most satisfying things I've done this year has nothing to do with you know athletics or achievement or traveling. But just slowing down and feeding birds. Um, we have several feeders around the place, bird and hummingbird feeders, and just learning not not only identifying them, you know, by their songs and by their habits, but um, just learning who's here and and what they eat and how they integrate into the larger ecosystem. You know, watching deer and elk come in to to feed from the the seed that hits the ground under the feeders, that sort of thing, like. There's nothing athletic. There is no quote-unquote achievement to any of it, but it's fascinating and engaging, and it, it 
makes me feel like I'm starting to understand the bigger picture just a little bit because I've slowed down and paid attention. Wow. Going from the macro to the micro. <laughs> or vice versa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what, when you guys, what was the feeling tone when you guys were in Colorado? What, like, what was the seed that made you consider slowing down and moving somewhere that was rural? Um, I don't know that it was a conscious thing that I was, you know, that I desired slowing down. Um, you know, when, when Jenny and I talked about moving, it wasn't, hey, you know, we got to get out of here and slow down. There was certainly the feeling that the pace was too high where we were, but I, I never thought, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, get, I'm escaping this so that I can slow down. It was more just let's, let's go somewhere that suits us better, and, and that's, you know, bigger picture than just slowing down. Mm. That makes sense. Um, what, what got you into pack rafting? I don't know that there's any one thing I can say that got me into it. Um, I'd been aware of it since probably the mid-90s, maybe early 90s. Um, there were a handful of uh, these really interesting races known as the Alaska Mountain Wilderness Classic, or just abbreviated as the Wilderness Classic, that were happening in Alaska. Um, very uh, grassroots. You know, no organization or very little organization. They'd kind of just pick a start point and an end point and a very limited rule set. Typically, you know, you can't travel on the roads and, um, you know, take care of yourself and go. And I found those races so compelling because they were, you, you, there was no set route. There were no trails. You couldn't no. use roads. And usually there, there weren't roads anywhere near where the routes were chosen. And so it was a choose-your-own-adventure sort of thing. And so there were massive amounts of strategy and route finding and navigation. And you had to be good at gear abstraction, figuring out what to bring and what not to, and, and being uncomfortable and dealing with it. And there was sleep deprivation involved. And um, you, you might have detected a quickening in my voice as describing this because I still find that genre really compelling. Um, you know, the sky's the limit as, as to what you can do as a human in that environment. Um, I've never actually done one of the wilderness classics, um, but I was really, really interested in reading about them when the stories started trickling out in the 90s. And uh, almost invariably, there would be a pack raft component to those races. And uh, I... I I have heard lots and lots of the stories firsthand because I have a lot of Alaskan friends who've done a lot of those races. And, um, you know, they, they, you really couldn't be competitive. A lot of the races you couldn't even finish without a pack rest. And so that was sort of my introduction to it. Um, that said, I also thought that some of these guys were absolutely loony tunes with <laughs> the risks that they were taking um, to win a race, you know, where the prize was, um, self-satisfaction and oh don't get me wrong self-satisfaction is a tremendously compelling reason to do something um, but the the risks that they were taking um, do yourself a favor and and go down the rabbit hole of learning about the wilderness classics especially back in the early days 
and um, and you'll understand a little bit better of, of what I mean and what I'm driving toward. So anyway, that was that was sort of my introduction, and uh, and they were always there on the on, in my peripheral. I was aware of what they were and how people were using them. But living in Colorado and and at the time, you know, racing bikes professionally, there just wasn't a lot of space in my life for that. And uh, not too long after I retired from racing, um, I just started to be interested in getting off of trails and off of beaten paths and seeing what um, what what I could learn, where I could go by using waterways uh, to travel. So early on, that meant um, combining bikes and boats pretty frequently. And, um, boy, it changes immediately. I mean, immediately it changes the way that you look at maps. Um, instead of the blue spots, you know, the blue spots of lakes or the blue lines of rivers, instead of those being obstacles, they are now sought out. And... Um, and it just opens a whole new world to you. That's cool. And I, even from the few times that I've run rivers, it really changes my perspective of the um, the local like wilderness being able to float down those rivers. Everything looks so different from there. Sure, and even even urban environments like you know you don't really think too much about paddling a river through a city but you get such a different perspective of that city um, from sitting in a boat and moving down a waterway. Um, you know, you see its underbelly, you know, the homeless, the, the trash, the pollution, that sort of thing, but you also see a lot of beauty, hidden beauty um, right under your nose that you wouldn't really think about um, or haven't really thought about until it's right there in front of you. Oh, that's really cool. It's almost like a creative constraint, but it's a travel constraint instead. Interesting way to put it. Uh, I, I found myself um, picking adventurous and almost contrived ways to get places <laughs> when it comes to um, when it comes to trail running and rock climbing. And I found that um, through the rivers, like to be able to constrain myself in like going slower, right, as opposed to driving a vehicle, putting my son in a boat and going down a really easy river. Um, we get to see things that we normally don't get to see because we're constrained on speed um, and we're also um, constrained on, like, distractions, for instance. There's no electronics or anything like that, right? We don't have the yeah. complete freedom to do whatever we want in this um, vehicle or, or method of travel, for lack of a better word. And because of those constraints, we get to have a completely novel experience. And you're also doing it in close quarters. You know, you mentioned the lack of distractions, the lack of electronics. That's priceless these days. Um, and then combine that with the fact that both of you are in the same boat interacting as you go. Um, that's, I, I already used the word priceless, but it fits here too. That's, that's not something to be taken for granted. It's fun in these situations because even just lightly, right? I haven't, I've only done things up for me class too. Um, but to do things with my son that are very chill, even the sense of unknown as we approach the bend in a river um, it is really gratifying and it helps me bond with him because we have to confront that unknown together. And that's where it like, it's so like, you know, like first world kind of thing. Right. But I don't really have ways to access that other than through recreation. Um, mm. And it's like through that experience that we get to have this like, 
positive um, and almost structured adversity um, to where we can grow together. And I think when we don't have those things, like it's harder for me to be able to connect with them because it's like, it's like the difference between um, lecturing a lesson and experiencing a lesson. But, yep. Yeah. Yep. Do you, do you sense that he is, how old is he? He's eight. Do you sense that he, you know, you recognize the unknown as you approach that bend in the river because you are, you know, you are how old you are and you have had your life experiences to that point so that you recognize that, hey, you know, I don't know what's around there. There could be danger around there. There could be something wonderful around there, but either way, I need to be prepared. To what extent do you think he recognizes the unknown as you approach that bend of the river? So in our own relationship, um, when when he confronts uh, unknowns, he's often filled with anxiety, and that doesn't that can be independent of the river because um, in his experience, the relationship that he's had with his mom is like not necessarily traumatic, but or borderline like the, the trauma, and he's had a lot of anxiety from that. And like I've tried. Well, I've tried to catch myself in explaining it away, you know, and like, this is how you, you know, it's okay. I'm here for you because like, as a father, I'm confident to say that I am consistently there for him. And I really put him first in that way. Um, But saying those things doesn't really change that anxiety. You know, I can't literally explain it away. Um, What I've found in learning and, and studying, um, but also in experiences is the best that I can do is give that space and allow him to find experiences that voluntarily challenge those feelings um, so that he can grow in his own way. And the more that I try to like um, create a rigid idea um, or a rigid system of how he will grow, um, the less I get in his way and my way and the more I tarnish the relationship. But if I were to take him to a skate park or take him mountain biking on trails or pack rafting and we approach that bend in the river and it's an adequate um, challenge for him to where he's not overwhelmed, uh, then he's able to confidently confront those challenges. And what my hope or uh, the confidently confront the uncertainty and be secure that the adults around him will keep him safe. And it's my hope although I do feel doubtful sometimes, that through doing this consistently, he will grow in his own way. Um, And at the very least, if he doesn't, um, then I've been able to get close and build the trust with him that we can talk about it and we can suffer together. Wow. Um, You mentioned that you are heading in the direction, potentially heading in the direction of graphic design. Mm-hmm. Um, what what are you doing now, or what did you do before? I ask because it, it sounds like a whole lot of psychoanalysis is happening right here, right now. Yeah, I I was um, working in a school district. They have a, a private co-op called the Discovery Schools, and um, here in Washington. Um, and what they do is they get kiddos who aren't able to. Um, they have an integrated education plan. They're not. They get, like, expelled um, from school or the school, the public schools aren't able to um, handle their behavior. 
Um, and these kiddos have like emotional and behavioral disorders from like often like very defiant or borderline very like very aggressive trying to hurt you over doing just you know very basic schoolwork. Um, and I was a one-on-one uh, with the student, and uh, I would every day I would go to school and I would work with them, and I didn't have any like technical education. Um, all it was was just to support him and to support the teacher and that bridge that relationship. But um, I found in there, I would basically work with the student, just that student and I, six hours a day, um, five days a week. And I went and did that because I've often had the curiosity for how people um, interact with the world and, and how my myself interacts with the world, very observant. Um, and I didn't really know where to place those feelings and interests. Um, and so somebody, I got that opportunity to work with those kiddos, but really it was the same school schedule as my son because being younger and not having a career in mind um, and getting really interested in all these like cool sports and stuff, I really don't know what I'm doing um with my professional life and um right in the past five years i've been exploring my recreational life um so all i was trying to do is find a job that i can take care of my son and that one happened during his school hours um but with that i've unfolded a little more of myself and i realized that i really like learning about people even like um extraneous or very challenging behavior and also people who come from a you know like a I don't want to say average kind of household um, but I still don't know what to do with those feelings because I'm I found that this is personal but I'm really happy to talk about that cause it's kind of what it's all about I guess oh, what um, I go into graphic design because I feel like it's something that I should do but I have all these feelings and interests that I don't really know what to do with to be honest. And this podcast is like an extension of that. Like, I really like talking with you, you know, and I like talking with all different kinds of people, but it's not the thing right now that pays my bills. So I'm very conflicted in that because if I do graphic design, like you said, if we had 60 hours a day, I'd be wonderful, you know, to do all the things that we want to do. But life seems to be less defined by what you can do or what you do do and more defined by what you don't do. And I struggle with that. Because I honestly have these desires and interests, but I probably would be better off if I said them professionally instead of going off in a different direction because I think that's what I That was a very long, like, rambly thing. But. Yeah, no, there's, I mean, there were, that that brings up several several other questions. You, you broke up the end. I think you said that something to the effect of um, life is defined not by what we get to do, but by what we don't get to do. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that's a choice. I think you should explore that idea on your next ride or run or hike or even just in an idle moment. And I think that's, I'm at this point in my life where like my son's doing this, is doing remote learning. Um, and it's completely disrupted the whole lifestyle where now I do have to be home um, while he's learning. And so I think that question and thinking on that question on a nice long run or long ride will be really helpful because I'm at a crossroads, I think, Mike. Sounds like mm-hmm. it's 
sounds like the the job that you were doing you didn't say when it it stopped but it, i would i would venture a guess that it's covid related yeah um it uh it sounds like something that has both taught you patience and rewarded your natural patience and and giving you an avenue um into uh the human mind that clearly you're you're very curious about um, you have some amazing insights. Um, had you not told me you were in your mid-20s, I would have guessed decades older um, because you have insights that a lot of people will never arrive at. Um, and those of us that have arrived at some of them, um, they, you know, it's, it's taken decades longer than, than you have. Yeah. Um, and with that said, I seem to have lacked some other basic skills that <laughs> I've been railroaded into when I practiced jujitsu because I found when I was like a kid and I went into working in the restaurant industry, it was like I had two left hands and a lot of certain things that were easier for me was a lot harder. And that's where I've had conflict throughout my life. Um, If that makes any sense. It it does. It totally makes sense. I don't think there's a person out there that can't relate to that, you know, in, in some context of their life. Um, I, I think maybe you should, you know, remind yourself, maybe not be so hard on yourself and just say that, hey, everybody has these struggles. You're not unique in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that's it, doesn't, that I, it doesn't. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say that's something that I, I take a lot of comfort in, especially coming from you, because I am constantly reminded by people who I would almost mistakenly put on a pedestal or um, idolize. And I, I'm not religious, but like that don't worship false idols um, sentiment from like Christianity and stuff is very interesting if you don't apply it to religion. And I apply that to people because we all have our own suffering and we have our own faults, right? If you were to take someone who struggles with insecurity, for instance, I found that that person who's doing this highly social thing of jujitsu, right? Um, there, I would never have guessed that a black belt who's been training for 12 years would struggle with like social anxiety. And what I had realized is, is I was idolizing people because the reality is that, that I, that I think the way I think it seems to work is if you were to like struggle with, um, a certain thing of your personality, right? Um, it doesn't just go away. And that's that idea that like paradise isn't really permanent. It's kind of temporary. Um, because those people who struggle, like my friend who struggles with social anxiety or if they're a black belt, they still struggle with it, but they have like a sophisticated coping skills for it. So when that, that thing that they've struggled with throughout their life arises, they're able to manage it just a little more tactfully as opposed to making it go away altogether. And sure. That's comforting because I would always look to myself for like one day you won't, you know, be so hard on yourself. One day you won't have self-doubt. And like it's very freeing to learn that I don't think that that it seems that it doesn't happen. It just seems that you're able to work with it more, you know, invite it at the table and have some tea. I, I don't know anyone in this life that, you know, has had a a challenge some something you know their thing whatever it was that has ever gotten past it you know you mentioned i think you mentioned insecurity as the start of that um and i don't i don't think that ever does go away not to say that it can't but it just doesn't seem like it does um but as you noted you 
if you're if you're interested in improving yourself, um, being a better person in the world, then then yeah, you find coping mechanisms, you learn to adapt, um, you become more elegant at that adaptation. Um, that's just the way the process needs to work. Um, how has your um, experience in mountain biking and pack rafting, and I would extend that to owning your own business too, affected your um, your outlook on life and your coping skills? Um, boy, that's a big question. And <laughs> what the the first thing that comes to mind is um, I when I was racing bikes, um, the the race that I found the most compelling was um, in the wintertime in February in Alaska, and it used the Iditarod Trail as the race course, um, the, the snow-covered route that the dog sleds race on, about a 1,000 miles, basically crosses the whole state of Alaska. And that that was super compelling to me, and I have learned many of the most important lessons of this life um, from preparing for and executing that event. Um, and pretty early on, um, it became obvious that it was not <laughs> shocker. It was not like any other bike race. Um, it was not like showing up for a race an hour from the house, doing a couple laps, getting muddy, having a laugh and then going home. Like there were consequences. Um, it's a very big, very cold, very indifferent to humanity sort of place. And you really had to have your shit together, pardon my French. <laughs> and um, after making several mistakes, some of them um, some of them worse than others, uh, I developed a strategy which I referred to as, um, I've never, I don't think I've ever verbalized this, but um, in, in my mind it was, you have to look at the things left to be done as sequential and not cumulative. Um, in other words, I, I could very easily overwhelm my very low processor speed um, by thinking about everything that had to be done all at the same time. And I would dwell on mistakes and that would divert me, divert my attention from the things I really needed to be focusing on. And so just focusing on the one thing in, in front of me um, or the one or two things, uh, if possible, um, seemed to be a much more uh, successful strategy than trying to see the big picture all at the same time. Mm. To give like a little visualization on what that strategy would look like, um, in the situation to remind yourself to think of things sequentially and um, or the left to be the things left to be done sequentially, not cumulative. Is it a, a one-off reminder where it's like, okay, no, focus on this thing? Or does it look more like a mantra where you're like repeating and reminding yourself continually over a, a period of time to focus on like these specific things? I come from the ultra running background where it's like you're waiting to an aid station and it's 10 miles coming up and all I want to do is quit. Um, I, I don't think it's ever felt like a mantra. Mm -hmm. um, it's always been sort of a general reminder, um, like, like for example, you know, in, in that event that I'm referring to, you, you're bivvying every night. The temperatures can be, it can be as warm as, you know, plus 20 Fahrenheit, but more often it's below zero and sometimes it's way below zero. And so you, you keeping yourself dry 
is important because you're when it when you get sleepy enough that you have to stop for a while, that means stomping out a little trench in the snow, throwing down your pad and bag and, and getting a few winks. And if you're sweaty when you arrive there, you're in a really, really bad place. Like you're potentially a life threatening place, depending on, on you know, all the other factors uh, involved. And so you know, it was never a mantra, but it would be one of those things like, okay, you know, you're, we're, we're climbing, we're working our way up to the crest of this range right now. And, um, and a lot of effort, you know, there's a lot of output to get up this hill, to push this heavy bike up this hill. You know, you can't sweat. You have to slow down the pace or drop a layer or, you know, change something, ventilate, whatever, so that you're not sweating. And, you know, our, as you referenced ultra running, you know, you referenced several different sports where our inclination is, you know, let's just go, let's just get this done. You know, the faster we get to the top, the faster we get done. Mm -hmm. In an event that lasts two to three weeks, you know, you have to take the long view. You have to slow down and and take care of yourself moment to moment. Otherwise, the long view just isn't going to matter. Two to three weeks? (laughs) Whoa! Uh, yeah, um, oh, that is so wild. I think the fastest I ever did it was 15 days, and the slowest was maybe 22 or 23, something like that. Wow. Um, yes, some some people like yourself seem to come by patience naturally, and others of us have to be taught the hard way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For um. A mountain biking races was that like your favorite one that you've done? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm I've never been a very good athlete. I am, you know, John Q. Average in every way. Um, and so while I was always interested in racing mountain bikes, I was never competitive at racing mountain bikes. Um, and you know, through through my life, I learned that. Um, the, the longer the race was, um, the better I did. You know, the better I felt, um, the more engaged I was, and uh, and it just seemed like I had something that um, that not everyone had as far as being able to go those distances. So I I ended up gravitating towards stuff that was in in the, those sorts of lengths, couple week long races. That's an interesting insight where you you find that you like something and then you, you look at what, what you bring to the table and you kind of readjust a little bit. Mm. Um, I, I found that in jujitsu and I thought I was a failure um, in some sense where I would go a little different, but I was trying to compete in jujitsu and uh, okay. Even ultra running too. <laughs> and I realized that the relationship of, of that, like, I really like the adventure aspects. I would rather do, for ultra running, I'd rather do an FKT, you know, where I have to go on a route that's, like, not supported, and it feels kind of like your, um, the Adidas-Trod, or, yeah, Adidas-Trod Trail Invitational, um, where, like, I have to, there's a lot of things that are ambiguous, and I have to put it together. Um, but performing on, like, a track or, like, a very well-put-together race, and getting it dialed in wasn't very compelling for me. Just being competitive for the sake of being competitive wasn't compelling for me. And I was at odds with, with how I felt because I just thought that I wasn't very, um, that's, that's, what is it? I thought I was just terrible at trying hard, you know? Because in, 
when I would compare myself to my ultra runner friends who are just like have their A and B races and their goal is just to place as high as they can. And, you know, jujitsu friends who are like trying to win these tournaments. That was the only thing that really mattered to them. And it could in that relationship so they can be competitive. But like I said earlier in the um, podcast, when I would enter in that relationship with um, ultra running or with jujitsu, um, it just didn't fit for me. And I, I had to wrestle with that a lot. And for me, it's come to terms of doing like the FKTs. If I'm going to try to do anything where I'm going to compete, there's certain situations that are compelling to me. And they're even very niche in the field of running, right? It's not just trail running. It's like trail running with, you know, no crew and no people, you know? Um, yep. And it was interesting for me to, to have that experience because once again, from the outside looking in, um, it's not as straightforward as like you go and run so that you can be a winner and running and get your name out there. There's a lot more um, things that satisfy at least me. And, you know, it sounds like yourself um, from the act of running and, uh, or the act of adventuring that goes beyond winning. It's kind of round. Like... Go ahead. Oh, no, you're fine. Go ahead, Mike. Um, I was just going to sort of riff off of one of the things you just said. You know, there's there there is a genre, uh, or at least there are a handful of people um, who who are drawn to endeavors such as these FKTs, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it it seems to appeal to them so that they can get their name out there. And those people don't seem to last very long. You know, it's not to say that they aren't good athletes or, you know, are capable of doing whatever the endeavor is. Um, it's just that you, you need a lot more motivation than just um, self-aggrandizement. Yeah. Like you, when you mentioned the Alaskan Mountain Wilderness Classic, like that's like my thing. <laughs> like I don't even, mm-hmm. I hardly know about it, but just listening to like, to that, that kind of situation, right. It really excites me. And, I was, I didn't really know how to put that into words. And as I've been exploring um, and throwing gum up, up at the wall to see what sticks, I've really learned a lot about myself. And I guess for people out there who really haven't exposed themselves to the variety of recreation that's available, like there's a lot of different ways to have an adventure, you know, and you don't really know, at least it seems, unless you go out there and give it a try. Yep. Um, um, I, I, I was just sort of uh, thinking about a conversation I had with a friend who who's done a lot of those Alaska Mountain Wilderness Classics. He he often says in conversation that he feels like he was born a hundred years too late because that sort of thing is is what he enjoys and what he's good at and um, you know what motivates him. And then recently. As technology, you know, the technology that we use to participate in these outdoor endeavors, bikes and boats and skis and whatnot, has has gotten so good, you know, the last 20 years, he started to flip that on his head and say something like, you know, now I feel like I was born 50 years too soon. Um, <laughs> because he, you know, he, he wants to, I think he has a little bit of FOMO, you know, he wants to get out and and achieve at the highest levels that people are doing and able to do um, as the equipment has finally gotten up to snuff. Um, I, I guess it just comes back to, you know, you, there's always going to be a compromise. It doesn't matter who you are, where you live, when you were born. Um, you kind of just play the hand you were dealt with. 
that's what I was saying earlier about um, at the very least and take comfort if, you know, the choices that I make as a, as a father aren't going to produce like the ideal outcome for my son that at the very least we could just suffer together because I come to the point to where like as a father, it's not my goal to remove, um, to make it to where his life is free of pain and discomfort and, you know, that hardship. I would never voluntarily, you know what I mean? Uh, give him those things if he didn't want it as in like a backpacking situation, or I would never like do something abusive. Right. Um, but if he's experiencing suffering, that's part of life. And I don't explaining, I mentioned explaining it away when he feels very anxious, but like the reality of it is, um, there's always these things that we have inside that we have to deal with. Right. There's always these challenges of the inner landscape of a person. Um, and even the place where you are, like the temperature might not always be right. Like, you know, where you're standing right now, it might be too hot or too cold out. Like if it's not really rainy and soggy, it might be too sunny. You know, there's it's, nothing is ever really perfect. And that's where like I try to talk to my son and myself about meeting reality on reality's terms. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you, in that in that last little bit, you, you use the word suffer or suffering a handful of times. Um, that's. I've been accused of seeking out suffering um, by traveling partners or significant others. And um, it's it's been a long time since that's happened. And I'm sort of having to flash back here to those conversations. But I think perspective matters. You know, like you can be in an adverse environment with adverse conditions, but that doesn't have to be suffering. You know, you can also embrace the adversity and look at that as opportunity. And it sounds really cliched. I'm aware of that. But, um, boy, therein lies an enormous difference. Mm. Mm-hmm. You, you engage with that frequently in your, um, in your sports, though, right? Because the very act of um, biking, in my experience, if I bike uphill, like, there's a part of me that enjoys that. But there's a part of me that's in pain. And I guess... We'll make a, I'll make a, um, a definition or distinction on like suffering. Um, you can feel in pain, you can feel in com- or uncomfortable, but you don't really have to suffer. And, right. and like, I've had that when I'm, uh, we'll just use biking, but like, you know, mountain biking up a hill and I'm really excited to hit this downhill line. Like it's really pretty and it'll be so much fun. But in the process of going uphill, I'm sweating my legs feel like they're burning and it's none of it's very un, very comfortable. It um, feels kind of painful sometimes. And, you know, my mind just kind of like wants to quit at least like 50% of the time. Um, but there's this weird thing psychologically where if I can kind of be present and I can stay in that pocket, it does not happen all the time. Um, I don't suffer, but I actually find very weird pleasure in that pain and, mm-hmm. and it's, and it's, uh, it's not very like masochistic and it might even only happen for like five seconds, but that five seconds is so impactful that I'll probably remember it for a lot of the day. Yep. And is that, yeah. Is that, that's oh yeah. No, go ahead. You, I, I oh, stepped I on just, you. Sorry. 
is so is that though you someone who's like biking and doing these things that are um very like incredible from the outside looking in is that an experience that you would have still had in your experience biking in the sense that you spend this time mountain biking and you build your your strength and conditioning and you adapt to to biking and you get good at it and strong um do you still feel like you can still have moments where you're feeling like pain and discomfort in your body and how is your relationship <laughs> to that changed over time <laughs> the the easy answer is to repeat repeat a quote i'm pretty sure it was greg lamond that said it um you know famous road cyclist a couple decades ago um it never gets easier you just go faster um, <laughs> so that applies for sure um it the 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 pain of exertion, you know, the, the second guessing, the doubt, I don't think any of that ever goes away. Um, we are human after all. Um, but, you know, now with the benefit of a couple decades of perspective, I can say that, you know, I was thinking when you were, you were just describing, you know, climbing, your legs are hurting, you're sweating, you know, you, you're, you're doing it because you, you want the downhill on the other side, but you're not really enjoying the uphill. Um, you know, what, I didn't want to interrupt you, but what kept coming to my mind was, does your bike not have gears? Are you not able to shift to an easier one? Can you not slow your pace? Like you're, you're the man driving the train. Why, why does it have to be painful? And and that's that thing that, that I come to within running where I find that it's more psychological and I'm putting myself in a higher effort level. Right. That's mm -hmm. driven by the psychology and the narrative that I have going into this experience, because I've had that, you know, oftentimes where I have an expectation just going out for fun. Right. Where it's going to really running because this is where that applies, where like I have two hours and I'm going to do this many miles. And I my mind, I have that mindset going in, but my body gives me different feedback. And so instead of operating off of like a, a one to ten um, relative effort scale, right? I am looking at, not at at fixed numbers and I'm pursuing goals despite how I'm feeling without realizing that I'm here for the experience. Why am I putting myself through this discomfort and pain to achieve this, you know, fixed number? And then that almost makes me feel like I'm entrenched in ego at that point and not there for the love of the sport or the love of the activity. <laughs> Sometimes you just maybe shouldn't leave the house. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, this goes back to we don't have a 60-hour day, so that we have to condense things into X, X hours of the day, and um, you have to make some compromises. There are arbitrary natures to several of the things that we, we do. You know, you got two hours, you want to get a hard workout, something along those lines, or get from A to B or, or see that, you know, the backside of that one hill, you have to make compromises. And you know, I'm in no way am I suggesting that, you know, the discomfort or the pain is bad. You know, it's, it makes you a stronger person. It makes you feel like a stronger person um, mentally and physically. Those are all good things. They just don't have to be every day or every run or every ride. You know, there, there can be variety. You do have choices. And that's where I can get like, I find myself getting stuck and oscillating between these two extremes. And 
um, in reality, kind of out of balance now that now that I think about it, where it's like there's this part of me that um, can be where I, I don't want to. How do you say that? There's this part that's like has an aversion to discomfort and doesn't want to experience discomfort. And um, and the less that I put myself in uncomfortable situations, the less of a tolerance that I have to that discomfort. And sometimes I feel like that can bleed into like my day-to-day life, right? Um, then there's the flip side where if I am like a super rigid and disciplined person and I'm constantly putting myself in, unco- myself in uncomfortable situations, like my compassion for myself and all of these things completely can go out the window. Like I've ju- I just see pain. I've experienced pain on both extremes and where I find the the artful balance has been is trying to figure out when do I turn around and say, you know what, let's just go a little easier today. This is where I'm at. Or, you know what, that's just way too far. I'm not going to go that distance today because that's not what my body's feeling. Or like, I'm not at a point in my life where these goals are lining up with what I want, you know? And it's really hard to be like, am I just being, to draw that line to where it's like, am I just being, for lack of a better word, like lazy, right? Um, or do I need to like push my push myself more to get my potential or do I have to like, is this the time to listen to myself and to be compassionate and to practice self care? And that's like never really clear cut. I find. It sounds like you have a pretty healthy balance going because you have a little bit of everything. Um, you know, if, if your goal was to be a professional athlete, I might have a, a different perspective on that and you would need a different perspective on that. But, you know, you're, you're trying to be a well, well-rounded human being, not a professional athlete. And so it sounds like you're in a good place. But how do you find any measure of success from that? Or does any of that, like to you, from your perspective and where you're at now with, with all of these, the fruits of your labors, does that even fucking matter? Because I like I go back and forth. It's like, well, my rock climbing so that like I can get a first descent on something that's like crazy and people look up to and everyone knows who I am. Or am I just here to rock climb because I like to fucking rock climb? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I, I mean, we we everybody has to answer that for themselves, right? Yeah. Like, you know, you just I, I, I I've already forgotten what the. <laughs> uh, first question was there. I think you were asking how to define success, mm-hmm. um, or maybe you were asking does success even matter? Um, and yeah, I'm, I, I think the main thing is you you have to first define what success is, and I think that that is evolving on a day to day basis because life is not static. Mm-hmm. And and perhaps it's less of trying to achieve this. What you're saying is like the is, the idea of whatever your relative idea of success is, is evolving on a day-to-day basis is, you know, your life changes and your environment changes. And I think what I'm getting caught on is I grew up with an idea of like a successful, you know, um, person in the sport looks like this, this one thing, like there's this box that I could put a successful runner or mountain biker in, or I could put a successful, you know, painter in, but there really isn't. Because it seems that what I'm afraid of is doing the things that aren't very compelling to me and and not listening to what I really want. And I think that's a better barometer to go by because it's so fluid. Like, 
I came into sports and I realized that you're right. I don't want to be like a, you know, a world renowned um, trail runner. Like that's not success to me. And I have to define the way that, that I understand what success is relative to myself and do a lot of exploring that. And you mentioned that being an amateur um, can be very enjoyable and like engaging with that initial learning curve. Um, I almost find that that's like probably this trying to define what success means to me and listening to how other people define their own success is probably like the most riveting narrative in life because it's always exciting. You know, there's always like a new definition for it. It's not, it's hard for it to be monotonous. I'd almost say monotony is ignoring um, the evolution of your success in your own narrative, you know, doing the same routine over and over again without checking in on who you are and what you want to be doing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, I don't have anything to add to that. That's just a really interesting observation that I probably need to sit with for a while before I have anything to say on it. Well, I hear that you really like to um, build bicycle rims. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> or can people find um, out more about you? <laughs> Uh, I was taking that question as tongue in cheek. Was that a little segue? No, it definitely was. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I do appreciate, though, all of your time, Mike. It's been really cool to be able to talk to you. Um, As uh, in closing, is there anywhere that people could find out more about your work? Um, my wheel building website is lacemine29.com, L-A-C-E-M-I-N-E, number two, number nine. Um, and you can, you can learn about what I do there. There are also links to my, my online journal, my blog, as it were, and, uh, where I, I sometimes take the time to chronicle the things that I'm doing when I'm not building wheels. Um, that's probably a good place to start. Um, this has been a really interesting conversation from my perspective too. Um, it's, it was good to hear you share your experiences and your scenarios, um, as a means for giving me context on, on where I am and where I've been and why I am where I am now. And so I appreciate that. And I was really happy to be able to learn more about you and, um, get a lot of insight from your perspectives. Um, it's been a really great conversation, Mike. I, I really appreciate this. Thanks, Will. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. Woo! I love talking to folks like Mike Curry. Just leading life filled with adventure, pushing his potential, wrestling with ambition and contentment and, you know, what he wants out of life. He obviously spends a lot of time considering what his priorities and interests are. And building custom bike rims? What? Like, to be able to to make a living off of building a custom part of this, like, sport and activity that you love so much. For myself, who loves to work on my own and to have the responsibility of 
um, maintaining my, my business or my, my service and product. Uh, man, it's so cool to be able to talk with someone who puts it all together and makes it happen. Um, if you'd like to learn more about Mike's uh, um, custom rims, you can go to lacemine29.com. You can also check out his um, blog on lacemine29.com. He's a, a wonderful writer. I really love his words, and he talks a lot about the adventures that he goes on and just life in general. Um, Mike, had, if you're interested in pack rafting, rafting Mike had um, mentioned a book by Roman Dial called Pack Rafting, an introduction and how-to guide. is a great place to start. Um, I made sure to leave the link to that into his blog on the website becominghumanpodcast.com and in the show notes we got some really cool photos um on the website and some videos too of um mike doing the editatrod um trail invitational um and him biking some really beautiful places well thank you guys for listening to this episode if you liked it be sure to send your friends over to the website um go to itunes spotify google podcasts wherever you listen to this and rate review share it with your friends share it on social media do what you can and i'll see y'all next week bye